millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It was the best of time. It was the worst of time. She was the people's princess. We fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. We fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! Are the things that made England. Hello and welcome to The Things That Made England. This is the show where we discuss various things that could be considered to be crucial in the making of the country of England. We chew them over to decide whether they are worthy to sit in our illustrious cabinet of Things That Made England. Alongside, amongst other things, Margaret Thatcher, a nice cup of tea, scar music and road signs. Today I am joined by not one but Two luminaries. Luminaries, uh, please introduce yourselves. I, I, I'm Royfield and um, I'm a luminary. Very much so. Uh, I'm, I'm in no way illuminated, um, <laughs> but I'm David Crowther and I am a podcaster and I'm sorry for that. I am not, it's, this is Luke and Royfield's show. I just want to make it clear. I just wanted to join in for a couple of questions at the end. So I will be mute for much of this. Can we mute you? I think more importantly. <laughs> yes, I'll mute. I don't want to mute. Who? Uh, no, no, I do need to mute because I need to. I, it's very hard for me to keep my mouth shut. Okay, so I'm going to have to have an iron will. Okay, okay, right, so I'm going to yes. be on mute. Chip in whenever you want, David. Um, okay, good. And today I will be proposing that the British Empire is a thing that made England. And before the three of us start holding forth. Um, shall we hear from someone who actually knows what they're talking about? Uh, Sam Hume of the Pax Britannica and History of Witchcraft podcasts has very kindly agreed to send us a quick run through the history of the British Empire. So we've got things straight before we begin. Take it away, Sam. Hello, listeners of The Things That Made England. Royfield and Luke have given me the simple task of summarising the history of the British Empire in about as long as it takes to make a strong cup of tea. 
Let me just say how honoured I am to have been asked to do this. I've listened to the things that made England since the start, and never dreamed I'd actually be on the show, since, after all, I'm Manx. Though I do have English parents, so perhaps that gives me some legitimacy. Anyway, the kettle's boiled, and the tea is brewing, so let's get on. To start with, we have to go all the way back to the Normans, who, in the late 12th century, began intervening in Irish politics. The deposed King of Leinster requested the aid of Henry II of England in recovering his throne. Said King was returned to his throne, and the Normans were rewarded with land. To cut a long story short, a treaty was signed, it fell apart within years, and then Henry proclaimed his son, John, Lord of Ireland. This is the future King John of Robin Hood fame. This title, Lord of Ireland, would be held by English kings for centuries, until Henry VIII traded it in for a brand new model. He became King of Ireland in the 1540s, and for the rest of the century the Tudors struggled to enforce the reality of that crown, partly through diplomacy, partly through military force, and partly through a series of plantations. Land was confiscated from Catholic Irish and given to English Protestants to settle. This colonisation was intended to convert the Irish and quote-unquote civilise them. It was only in 1603 that the island was fully conquered, and it was under the Stuarts that English and now Scottish plantation really took off, particularly in the northern region of Ulster. Ireland has been called England's laboratory of empire, and for good reason. A lot of the colonies in Ireland failed, or made major mistakes. The people behind these plantations put these lessons to good use elsewhere in the world. There were still plenty of failures. The Roanoke colony is one of the most famous, but English colonies in North and South America were expensive and deadly failures until the reign of James VI and I. Once the English got a foothold in 1607, in the form of the Virginia colony, the rest of the North American colonies came relatively quickly. By 1634, Bermuda, Newfoundland, Plymouth, Salem, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Maryland, Rhode Island, these had all been settled, and more were to come. These are the only ones which became permanent. Many more were tried and failed, or were merged into their larger neighbours. To be an early settler in these colonies was a life-or-death struggle. You could starve to death if you didn't bring enough food. You could freeze in the winter you weren't prepared for. You could be killed by the indigenous people, who had their own ideas about whose land this was, thank you very much. Everyone had their own reasons for taking part. Some were seeking a place to practice their religion without interference. Others came for the vast tracts of land offered to settlers, far more than they'd ever get back in England. Others planned to make their fortune growing cash crops like tobacco, and return to England after a few years. People willingly, and sometimes unwillingly, signed into indentured servitude, promising a fixed period of labour in exchange for their passage being paid and a reward of land after their contract was finished. All of these motivations meant that, despite a horrendous death rate, there were always more colonists to take their place. For those looking to make a fortune, the North American colonies were all well and good, but it would be the small island colonies of the Caribbean which became the economic powerhouse of the English and later British Empire. Like on the mainland, several colonies failed before the English successfully put down roots. But put down roots they did. St Kitts in 1624, Barbados in 1627, Nevis in 1628, Antigua and Montserrat in 1632. Montserrat is interesting because of the large Irish majority which colonised it, making it one of the few Irish parts of an English Atlantic world. 
The crown jewel of the English West Indies came when the island of Jamaica was captured from Spain in 1655. Most of these colonies farmed tobacco or cotton, but it was only with the adoption of sugar and slavery that the wealth truly came rolling in. Working a plantation was brutally tough, and increasingly planters found it more profitable to rely on enslaved Africans rather than employ whites. Millions of enslaved people were brought to the English colonies, where they, and their children, and their children's children, would spend their lives in some of the most inhumane conditions imaginable. In India, the English East India Company were small fry in the first half of the 17th century. After exhausting negotiations with the Mughal emperor, the company was granted permission to establish a factory, an outpost, in Masulipatam on the Bay of Bengal in 1611. The next year, the company gained another factory on the opposite side of the Mughal Empire, at Surat. Over the course of the 17th century, the EIC gradually acquired new factories. The company got a bit overconfident and went to war with the Mughals in the 1680s. The Mughal Empire was one of the greatest powers in the world at this point, so the company got slapped down by the emperor and had to literally get down on their hands and knees and apologise, as well as paying a substantial fine. But, as the Mughal Empire declined over the following decades, company influence only increased. The Battle of Plassey in 1757 led to the British annexation of Bengal, and subsequent wars with the successor states of the dwindling Mughals meant that by 1818, the EIC was THE power broker of the subcontinent. After the Indian Mutiny, or First War of Independence in 1857, the British government took direct control of India, and in 1877, Victoria became Empress of India. British territory in modern Canada expanded in 1713 with the Treaty of Utrecht, which brought Nova Scotia into the empire. After the Seven Years' War, French Canada was annexed, bringing a large population of Catholic French speakers into the empire. The tension between the British government and this new population was eased with the passage of the Quebec Act in 1774, granting the colony a large amount of autonomy. In the aftermath of the American Revolution, migrating loyalists altered the population so much that the colony of Canada was divided into Lower Canada and Upper Canada. Nova Scotia was similarly divided, creating New Brunswick in 1784. After rebellions in the 1830s, Lower and Upper Canada were once again reunited by the British government in 1641, in a bid to restore some measure of control and swamp the vote of the suspect French population. However, Nearly 30 years later, in 1867, the three colonies of Canada were united into a single Dominion of Canada, and Lower and Upper Canada were once again divided, this time as provinces of Quebec and Ontario, within the larger Dominion of Canada. The colonisation of Australia and New Zealand began after the 13 colonies got a bit uppity, and Britain could no longer send its convicts there. The new penal colony was established in New South Wales in 1788. British settlement in Tasmania began in 1803, and in Western Australia in 1829. New South Wales expanded, and parts of the colony detached and formed their own administrations. South Australia in 1836, New Zealand in 1841, Victoria in 1851, and Queensland in 1859. These colonies were governed separately from one another, gradually gaining responsible government through the rest of the Victorian era. In 1901, the Australian colonies, with the exception of New Zealand, federated into a new Commonwealth of Australia. 
British colonization of South Africa began in the aftermath of the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. The Dutch Cape Colony was occupied by the British after the Dutch Republic fell to the French, and the British retained it in an 1806 treaty. The Cape was strategically vital. Until the Suez Canal opened, it sat on the only sea route between Europe and Asia, unless you wanted to go the long way around. Tensions between the British and the Dutch population, the Boers or Afrikaans, led to the establishment of Dutch republics, such as the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. These were conquered after two Boer Wars, the last ending in 1902. The expansion of the British Empire in Southern Africa is particularly interesting, with the champion of British imperialism Cecil Rhodes orchestrating private wars to expand British territory, forming Rhodesia. Now that my tea has probably begun to stew, we will race to the end of empire. In 1907, the white settler colonies, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Newfoundland, and the South African colonies, attended the 1907 Colonial Conference in London. Here, they were granted the status of dominions. In 1910, the South Africans followed the path of Canada and Australia, and unified. The First World War broke out in 1914, and the dominions backed the United Kingdom. In 1916, the long-simmering Irish problem, as it was termed, led to the 1916 Rising in Dublin. As the Risers had themselves expected, the British violently put it down and executed many of the ringleaders. During the war, another imperial conference was called, and the Dominions, plus India, were invited to send representatives to sit in the British cabinet and help direct the war. This was a mark of equality which had never been seen before, and it was agreed that once the war was over, the constitution of the empire had to be looked at. London could no longer ignore the opinions of the empire. After the war, the Irish War of Independence broke out, and in 1922 a treaty was signed creating the Irish Free State. This state was created with dominion status, but notably did not include the six counties of Ulster, a legacy of Stuart colonisation. In 1926 and 1931, it was formally announced that the Dominions and Britain were functionally equal and part of a British Commonwealth. Now, this equality only applied to the white settler colonies, and not even all of them, only the Dominions. Many Caribbean, African, and Asian colonies remained explicitly under the governance of London. India, while part of every imperial conference since 1917 and increasingly consulted, remained in a constitutional grey area despite the growing dissatisfaction within the Raj. Responsible government was constantly promised to be just around the corner, but when the Second World War broke out, it had still not turned up. The empire rapidly shrank after the war. Colonies gained independence, sometimes peacefully and sometimes after violence. Many of these former colonies joined the Commonwealth, turning what had been an exclusive club for the white settler colonies into a body much more representative of the former empire. And that is a quick and simple history of the British Empire. Now I will leave you in Royfield and Luke's capable hands and go and enjoy an incredibly strong cup of tea.
So, um, I think before we get sort of too into it, we should sort of set some parameters. Now, David, this is where I am going to ask you to chip in a bit because uh, I've got my notes here and I said, I've said that David says I'm not allowed to talk about Scotland. Um, and he thinks I will let my rather tenuous Scottish <laughs> blood take over and lament poor Scotland's miserable history of I oppression <laughs> under the Sassanac jackboot. So, uh, David... Is that supposed to be a Scottish accent? <laughs> yeah, it was. I think it was quite sort of recognisably Scottish, wasn't it? My, my accents are particularly, particularly bad. No. But I'm in good company. On I mean, that, I don't want I? to be rude, but... Uh, yeah. But no. Right. Um, yes, actually, it wasn't quite not mentioning Scotland. In fact, it's rather the other way around. It's very much mentioning Scotland, that Scotland's in, uh, past is as imperial as England. So it's this kind of myth around that all nasty old England came and corrupted Scotland... Uh, the, union, the union was based around the Darien project. It was a Scottish king that started the Ulster plantations in Ireland. There was a Scottish king in the, in the 14th century who uh, tried to claim and make himself king of Ireland. Um, you know, it's just a myth, essentially. Uh, there is a saying, uh, the English conquered the empire and the Scots ran Scots it. Ran it. You're yeah, literally I do reading know. exactly what I was. I thought you were going to say. Oh, exactly. <laughs> <That's> yeah. perfect. <laughs> but we have had this this argument. <laughs> we before. have. So, so you're, you know, you're basically invoking, I believe, in this episode, Rule Thirty Two B, Subsection C, which is that this is about Britain, but of course it has a. This is a sub something which has deeply affected um, uh, England and England and English attitudes. But it was just as important in Scotland, and Scotland made as much of a contribution. It's just that they've managed to, I would claim, dump it on the English. So they managed to forget their imperial past much more easily than the English, because they've just said, it's an English thing. Mm. Like the Austrians of the world wars, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah, like the Austrians in the world wars, well, world wars yeah, I guess. Um, I was, at first off, when this topic was... Um, chosen I, I wasn't really up for it and um i've got to before we before you start luke i have to you know say that very clearly for the listeners and number one i think we're all children of empire but i think i symbolically am much more of a, a child of the empire um why am i a, a black skinned brit with an english accent uh from birmingham you know i'm very much the post-colonial um, remnants in in a way <laughs> of, of the empire you know so so there is that so for me um on the one hand i i can't quite be so academic uh about the topic um but then also um i've kind of come round to discussing the topic because without wanting to talk about multiculturalism again but there is a big difference between the constituent elements of the United Kingdom and actually how they look. And it is immigration. Mm. So I could, I'm going to be slightly wrong on the percentages here, but I'm fundamentally right with the point I'm about to make. There are 13% of the United Kingdom who are non-white, of which 96% of those non-white inhabitants live in England. Mm. Uh, Northern Ireland is very white, so is Scotland, so is Wales. And then within 
England, the non-white population can be boiled down to in to London, Birmingham, um, Leicester, northern mill towns around Manchester, ditto around Leeds. If you take out those population centres, then England becomes very, very white. Uh, but but um, in terms of the empire making modern England, it's hard to say that is not the case if you just look at um, Englanders, mm. you know, uh, as opposed to the Scots, the Welsh and the Northern I- Irish. There you go. Luke Baxter, when you want to start, sir, I'm along for the ride. I mean, I know I wasn't going to say anything, and I really apologise, but there are two things I have to say to what Royfield has just said. First of all, Royfield said uh, that he speaks English. It's brummy that you speak English, <laughs> I mean, come on, let's be accurate about this. I'm sorry. Uh, I was going to make another equally rude point, but I, fortunately I've forgotten what it was. <laughs> uh, and I forgot I forgot Bristol in, in my list oh, of yeah. uh, the bits of it. Yes. And also, you forgot Loughborough. Let me advance the claims of Loughborough. <laughs> well, less the than finest curry outside London. Okay? <laughs> but it's also interesting that you know, because of empire, you are living far from England, uh, but in a country where you can use the same language that you speak here, um, because um, mm. America was part of the empire as well. Um, uh, it was. It was. Yeah. Though, whenever you see the. Um, the the categorization of the ex British Empire yeah. historically in so in so many instances the thirteen colonies and yeah. America's actually not mentioned yeah. you know it's always as if to say this was a Victorian uh, yeah. kind kind of invention but anyway Luke yeah. uh, when you're ready to no just the other note on the sort of things that we won't be talking about is I'm not going to touch on Wales um, because Wales is very much Fiona's domain in the TTME team. Sounds nice, doesn't it? The TTME mm-hmm. team. Um, but what I hope is that Fiona will write us a piece for the Facebook page, which I urge you all to join, by the way, and then she can lay out Wales's position in the empire far better than I ever could. Um, I think we can talk a little about the legacy of empire and the colonies themselves, but what I'd really like to focus on is the legacy of empire here at home in, in England. So let's set as our sort of guiding parameter for this episode as how the British Empire made England i.e. not how the British Empire made Jamaica, for example, sorry, Royfield. Um, I mean, this is the things that made England, after all, and uh, you can go to How Jamaica Conquered the World if you want to hear the other side of the story. It's a great podcast. So I'm going to be talking a bit about where it all began, um, how empire has contributed to a sense of Britishness, a little bit on the Royal Navy, where I'm very glad to let you two argue it out. I think you've got a long-running Royal Navy beef somewhere, haven't you? Um, and then we can discuss some of the key effects of the empire in England, sort of economic, cultural and ethnic. And finally, let's talk about the legacy of empire and what it means to England today. So where it all began. And here, I think, you know, we can start with Ireland because that's not contentious at all. <laughs> Ireland is England's first and last and always colony, to quote the Sisters of Mercy. Um, And it started as early as the Anglo-Norman invasions of the 12th century onwards. But it was not really until the 16th century that the English penetrated much beyond the Pale. Um, And the Pale being the bridgehead established in the Viking city of Dublin, a remnant of an earlier colonization by the Scandinavians. And over the 800 or so years that all or part of the island of Ireland has been an English or British possession, 
it really has experienced all the worst and most common aspects of imperialism. Massacres, removal from land, religious oppression, famines, invasions, ethnic cleansing for a very long time and for very few tangible benefits. And we are still there. And our presence there is to this day, quite, quite literally to this day, uh, still is having a massive impact on England. Uh, we might come on to Brexit later if we dare. Um, but the imperial hangover of Northern Ireland is seriously complicating our ability to get out of this supernatural entity that we joined once our own empire had fallen away. Um, Presumably means su uh, supranational rather than supernatural. I, didn't I say super? Did I say? I said supranational. I thought did I said say supernatural. I thought, yeah, supernatural. You said, did it say spooky? Supranational. I thought I was being quite pedantic. Come out, you black and tans. Come out and fight me like a man. Show your wife how you won medals down in Flanders. Tell her how the IRA made you run like hell away from the green and lovely lanes of Kilishandra. So, let's sort of talk about how... Um, the empire has sort of made Britain and a sense of Britishness. I mean, I know we've invoked the rule that we can talk about this as, as Britain. Um, but the birth of Britain and the birth of the British Empire in terms of what we would recognise, when we think of empire, we're thinking of the British Empire, not really an English empire. Sure, we could make an argument that the Battle of Brunaberg in 937 was a recognisable England defeating assorted Celts, Scots and Norsemen and it was the moment when it became clear who was ruling the roost in these islands. Checking Dave is not going to chip in there. Um, England, England was also part of the Angevin Empire that stretched from Hadrian's Wall to the Pyrenees and was ruled by English kings, in inverted commas. But really, England at that stage was just a piece of what was essentially a French empire. Those famous English kings were really Henri, Richard and Jean and England was passed around as a jewel in the dynasty's holdings. But it was really under the Stuarts, the first monarchs of Britain, that the empire really made a start, Jamestown being the first real colony from these shores. I'm not sure if this says very much about when countries become empire builders, but a similar thing happened for Spain. It was at the moment of the unification of Castile and Aragon under one religion that the Spanish empire came into being. 1492 and all that. And the Act of Union, 1707, is that right, David? I, think I got uh -huh. it wrong. <laughs> um, happened just seven years before the Treaty of Utrecht, which is what brought an end to the War of Spanish Succession and opened the world up, ripe for the picking by an ambitious imperialist nation, as we heard from Sam. Probably being in, building an empire together as a united British state brought the nations of Britain together. Where they had previously fought against each other, they were now united together, fighting common enemies across the world. So one of the legacies of empire, I think we could say, is that it helped make the English British. Boy, well, feels a bit nonplussed. No, no, I, I, you know, I, I genuinely, I hadn't thought about it before. And, uh, and, and I think I agree with, with, with that statement, but mm. I hadn't thought about it before. Oh. Mm. I think I agree too. Um, 
they're very, um, you know, the English have always been very invested in uh, in Britain, and the empire is a thing that brought us together. Yeah, knitted us together, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Along with uh, Protestantism, but you know. Yes. Yes. Um, so this is where I was going to talk about the uh, the Royal Navy, which uh, is much more uh, your bag of tricks, um, guys. But um, but I think there is you know the very definite identification of self in Britain and by extension England is that we see ourselves as a sort of maritime nation. This is very clearly entwined with empire. It certainly was not always thus. You know the Vikings were able to colonise a big section of this country thanks to their naval superiority. Likewise, Spain, Portugal, and the Low Countries were, for a long time, far more advanced on the sea than we were. But empire, and an empire that was all over the place, required a navy. And so the growth of the Royal Navy and the empire went hand in hand. It was a kind of symbiotic relationship. Um, there are lots of theories about when the Royal Navy came into being. <laughs> but there's only what one, what says one. Here. <laughs> which is mine yes uh, it was Alfred no so what is what are the competing theories well really there's it's, there's really no competition because the first time you start a funded navy royal which is called a navy royal is under Elizabeth I there's signs of it under Henry VIII and Mary but so uh, that's the first time you get a funded navy with a strategy but where we have the foundation of uh, first the English Navy, which then becomes the British Navy, which is preeminent in the world, which has uh, for some 200 years no other real rivals until the Second World War is, of course, at the end of the 17th century. Uh, we are defeated by uh, the French and the, the country is, is going to be, potentially is going to be invaded. And it is that point when um, the English uh, exchequer is absolutely threadbare that this new institution called the Bank of England is set up to fund uh, the British Navy. So I call, I would say that anything else beforehand where the English um, are on the water is the English in ships. You know, the Mary well. Rose, etc. Whoa, 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 David, you had your say. However, right, what goes to underpin the empire is uh, the English Navy as constituted at the end of the 17th century. That's your answer, Luke. I've still got more to say about the, the Royal Navy <laughs> formed a key part in scientific advances by voyages like Captain Cook's that made all sorts of discoveries in astronomy, botany, and geography. And this command of the oceans was also behind the drive to find a way of establishing longitude at sea. One of the Navy's responsibilities was to protect all the British colonies that were popping up everywhere and to protect the goods that were being sent back from these colonies. The Anglo-Dutch wars, which I just mentioned, were wars of trade and particularly the slave trade. The war was largely fought in the narrow sea lanes between the two countries, but they were actually fighting for dominance of West Africa in British seas. These were naval wars. And this was obviously the darker side of Britain's dominance of the waves. The Treaty of Utrecht had given the monopoly for supplying slaves to the Spanish Empire to Britain. What did the empire actually sort of look like? Um, and, uh, you know, George V, so sort of apogee of empire, ruled over... 11,400,000 square miles. Um, 
I'm never very good at picturing size in square miles, but it sounds like quite a lot. Um, I think your map corner, Royfield, would be better for showing quite how much of the globe was red or pink. Um, mm. At its height, it covered a quarter of the world's land sur surface and had 410 million subjects. Here's a fact from a meme. You need to get all your facts from memes these days, I think. Of the 193 members of the United Nations, Britain has invaded 171 of them. Like <laughs> it's non-visual, David. Um, <laughs> why? I mean, why did we miss the other lot? But, but, yeah. I mean, that was just idle, lazy, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah Bolivia is quite hard to get to. I don't think we've invaded Bolivia. Um, <laughs> no. You have to really try hard. Um, yeah. And it was a bit of a mess administratively because there, there was the colonial office, but also an India office. The non-British territories that were protectorates but not colonies were run by the foreign office. But places like the Channel Islands were run by the home office. And one place, the Ascension Island, was officially considered to be a ship and was administered by the Admiralty. And there were... <laughs> um, there were different types of colonies. Uh, you know, obviously there was... The sort of settler states, as they were known, which was like America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa, where British people emigrated. Um, and then there were the sort of colonial empire, you know, India, most of Africa, the Caribbean, where British people went and came back again. I think we should mention Queen Victoria, who's the sort of embodiment of the British Empire at its zenith. And she's quite an unlikely embodiment, though. Um, at sort of four foot nine, she was hardly your typical image of a conquering Amazon queen. But probably her sort of matronly look helped Britain form an idea of itself as a benign empire when compared to the likes of King Leopold or a Kaiser. She was Victoriana, the mother of multiple children and the epitome of a caring empire. And I think, you know, possibly our current queen fills the same sort of role and she was the last monarch of empire. So let's uh, sort of move on to some of the sort of effects on England of, of empire. So let's start with economic. Um, not my strong point, I have to admit. The empire was a commercial enterprise, in essence, with private companies set up to run various outposts, such as the Newfoundland Company or the Hudson's Bay Company, which was once the largest landowner in the world, and, of course, the East India Company. I read a really interesting article in History Today about the early days of the East India Company. It was obviously massively powerful during the 18th and first half of the 19th century, but it made its first journey in 1600. And for a couple of hundred years, it was just a trading company that held small outposts that were often teetering on the edge of survival. I love those sort of images of people just disappearing <laughs> and setting up some post in some country that must have been so alien. Um, and then never coming back. So the empire, particularly India, had a significant impact on politics in Britain. Returning servants of the East India Company often came home with vast fortunes. These people were known as the nabobs, and they built or bought grand houses and used their money to enter into British politics. Robert Clive, who was responsible for really getting the British influence in India going, became an MP and was ennobled. The Russell family had set out to India as humble merchants, Humble merchants came back, baronets and also MPs. And then George Hibbert bought himself the rotten borough of Seaford in Sussex with the money his family had made running a massive slaving co company. 
there was a real fear at the time that this money coming from the colonies would have a destabilizing and possibly corrupting effect on Britain. Another way that the influence of the colonists told on British politics was the fact that while the slave trade was banned in 1807, slavery itself continued for another 15 years or so. And the slave-owning planters were a very powerful lobby in Parliament, with people like George Hibbert arguing for the right of the, of the slave owners. They eventually managed to secure themselves vast payouts in reparations for freeing their slaves. And famously, this payout, which represented 40% of the national budget of the day, and was not fully paid off until 2015, which is quite frightening, really. Mm. I am um, just just yeah. as a little uh, side note. There is um, somebody pointed out to me um, some months ago. There's a, a website which has uh, pinpointed on it the Scottish families who got that payout from the government. So they held slaves, uh, and, it, and it pinpointed where these Scottish families were in, in, in Scotland. And I forget there's like 40 or so prominent families. And um, it just so happens that uh, the one uh, family is just uh, in the parish of Duffus, which is exactly where my Scottish descendants came from. So my, my ancestors my Scottish ancestors got that government payout. Right. You know, and it was really just totally shocking on a personal point of view. There it was. There were there were my there were my uh, Scottish ancestors who got that government payout in the in the eighteen thirties. Wow. You know, to be compensated uh, for losing uh, their uh, humans. Yeah. Their slaves. It's shocking. Yeah. Isn't it? I didn't know you had Scottish blood. Oh, Absolutely. We're cousins, <laughs> you, and, you and me, Baxter. <laughs> Baxter hasn't got any Scottish blood in it. Baxter's about as Scottish <laughs> as you can get. But yeah, I mean, one of the way this economic impact is impacting today is that like a lot of organisations, the National Trust is assessing itself after the Black Lives Matter protests. It's just published a 115-page Interim report on the connections between colonialism and properties now in the care of the National Trust, including links with historic slavery. Um, we can we can link to that somewhere if anyone wants to wade their way through wade their way through it. Um, but for people who don't know, the National Trust is an organisation that preserves historic homes and other buildings that and opens them to the public. They have realised quite how many of their properties, these palaces, halls, and mansions were built or bought with money coming from slavery and empire. Apparently, Anne Widdicombe has given up her membership of the National Trust in protest at this, at this wokeness. <laughs> and for people who don't know who Anne... It's a funny argument, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, why would, in investigating great houses, why wouldn't you investigate where yeah. the wealth comes from and, and, and all that? It just sounds, you know, entirely sensible. I suppose the one thing that got everybody a bit riled was making Chartwell on the list when because Winston Churchill was a colonial secretary, which does seem extremely oblique. But apart from that, you know, it seems like a perfectly legitimate historical yeah, exercise. No, no. no. And, but anyway, if you've lost Anne Widdicombe, I don't think it's a, it's a big loss. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was quite a yeah. dancer, it turned out. Well, I mean, so, you know. Hopefully quite a few of our listeners don't know who, who Anne Widdicombe is. And if you don't know who Anne Widdicombe is, you can consider yourself quite blessed. 
And I think one of the sort of arguments about empires is quite often, well, did people know what they were doing at the time? And, I, you know, there were lots of people arguing against it at the time. There's um, In the 1840s, an, an East India Company official called John Sullivan wrote about the impact of British rule in India. And he said, quote, the, the little court disappears, trade languishes, the capital decays, the people are impoverished. The Englishman flourishes and acts like a sponge, drawing up riches from the banks of the Ganges and squeezing them down upon the banks of the Thames. But for the economic impact, I wanted to try and get some sort of good data on the economics of empire. Uh, you know, sort of how much did empire contribute to the coffers of Britain? What I really wanted was a sort of nice stat along the lines of over X number of years, the empire contributed Y number of millions of pounds. Um, but I couldn't find anything very good. I did find an article that claimed that Britain had taken $45 trillion out of India. Um, I ran this one past Sam, and apparently it is a little bit fishy. So other than that slightly dodgy fact, I haven't got any solid numbers on exactly what the empire represented to Britain financially. So in fine, the things that made England tradition, let's go vague. I think we can safely say that empire contributed loads, shed loads, if you will, to the treasury back in London, the financial hub of empire. Can you though? I think you can. I mean, I think that's, <laughs> I think there's, um, I haven't, it's one of those things I'd love to read up on and will do, of course, for the History of England podcast when it comes to it, um, because it's a very complicated argument. Um, uh, and, his, you know, historians who know can't, you, the reason you can't find a simple answer is because, I suspect there is no simple no. answer. And I'm not sure that's a safe conclusion that you've just made. I, I actually agree with David here. And there, there are many different ways of, of looking at it. And you could look at it in terms of just, uh, if you take a, a, a massive global sweep of world history, uh, there will be many pinpoints of human civilization. And civilization doesn't necessarily mean wealth, but let's just say for the sake of this argument that it does. Uh, you know, so the the Yellow River civilization, let's call it China, the Ganges civilization, let's call it northern India, etc. In the in the period of sixteen hundred to nineteen fifty, let's say nineteen seventy there is a massive change in terms of the wealth of those civilizations. They become relatively poorer compared to Europe and absolutely poorer as well. So what, the wealth of those civilizations goes somewhere. And, but where exactly does it go to the British state mm. or does it go to Britons? That's a different argument. You know, that we find ourselves in relatively impoverished at the end of the First World War. The, that's the British state. Um, the aristocracy is relatively uh, and absolutely impoverished at the, and is, is seen so at the end of that period. But we have a thriving merchant class. We have a thriving industrial complex whereby uh, South America, which is never part of the former British Empire, Argentina is the classic example, is in the throes to the Bank of England. You know, so I really agree with David here. We have to be really careful by, by saying that the British state gets enriched by empire. But we definitely, there is wealth 
which is taken from bits of the world, but it doesn't necessarily go to the British state in any kind of permanent way. But there are Britons who are, and British families and institutions which are enriched by... Yes, empire. sorry, yeah, I mean, that was something I did, I, you know, whether it trickles down and, and, you know, whether it's actually going to the British state, I think that's very key. But I think, you know, we wouldn't have done it if it wasn't financially viable. And I think, you know, one of the arguments about when, when slavery ended, but, slavery but, but ended you know what, because though, but, it was but, but, but not just, financially but, viable anymore. It wasn't, it was large that, well, not just because, because yes, it was a moral and, concern. And I, and I made, and, yes, and I made that point that it was the Bank of England that basically said we can get greater returns by, by not uh, putting this money in, into human chattel. But you've also got to remember, though, that by the end of the 19th century, empire is seen as something which, as a modern, in inverted commas, uh, European country, you should be doing. The Germans didn't make a penny out of it, but they felt they needed to have an empire because everybody else had one. You know, by by the last X amount of years of the, the last 150, 200 years of the Portuguese empire, it's a total drain on the Portuguese states. Ditto the Spanish when it still was still had the Philippines and Cuba. But it was seen as prestigious, you know. So, you know, that's not to excuse the horrific genocidal goings-on of various empires. But uh, by the mid-19th century, you know, it's it's this most countries aren't making money out but, of empire. Yes, I mean, I speak. So is that when, not, when you know, for, uh, India went from being a privately run place by the, the East India Company to being a state-run place? Was it maybe because it was crumbling, not just the, mm -hmm. the Indian mutiny? It was crumbling. It you know, just wasn't making the, the returns that it should do. Well, I, I think there's a moral, there's a, there's a change, isn't there? That there is this mission that um, of white man's burden that we're going to go and colonize and civilize the world. And, and also with that comes a certain responsibility that we can't have these merchants running off uh, and, and doing things kind of in our name, but not you know, in India. Uh, so we need the government to get in there and, and, to, and to do this properly. Um, what but, are the, what, go on, David. So just to add to that, Rifle, one of the, one of the very famous theories, I don't know if, if um, Sam has said this, one of the very famous theories is that the empire was kind of created by mistake. Mm. Um, and, I mean, it's not exactly, you know, quite clearly what Royfield says is quite right, you know, about a desire to civilise in a, a more than slightly um, arrogant, <laughs> imperialistic way. Um, but, you know, a lot of it happens because it happens and because individual cr individuals create empire through personal uh, ambition, and it ends up um, with the British state. It's not very coherent, right. essentially. Mm. And the other thing I was going to say with the relation to the cost cost benefit if you like of empire is that it gets more expensive i guess as well as not as less acceptable um morally speaking and people begin to change their views about imperialism which is a fa itself a fascinating process uh, people are not accepting it anymore you know people in that have been colonized and captured and all the rest of it are not just fighting back with their uh, you know with writing and so on they're fighting back physically and they're saying that this isn't right and we won't have it 
Um, so, you know, maintaining an empire becomes an impossibility for the English because they just haven't got the resources to, to do something which uh, the people that they have um, colonized or conquered uh, just won't put up with it anymore. Mm. And actually, that's, I think, one of the most interesting things that's happened with colonial studies over the last 30 years, which I think is more different from when I went to school. When I went to school, I was, you know, the empire was taught in a very level historical way. But local voices were never mm. present. And I think that the st our study of the British Empire has changed much more positively because yeah. of that, actually. Mm. The, the, there is also a real difference as to how the empire is seen in, in different phases, in, 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 in different ages. So you have somebody like Mahatma Gandhi, who in the 1890s actually mm. pro the empire and he goes yeah. to South Africa and he's very proud to be part of, part of the British empire and sees himself as, as an heir of the British empire. By the 1930s, um, absolutely not, you know, yeah. type of thing. But also there is the attitude of... Um, uh, when the, the attitude of indigenous peoples, when the English, the British go to, let's say, India, you know, they are trampling over centuries old cultures. There's and it's ditto the same thing when the English go to Kenya or Kenya <laughs> and you have the Mau Mau uh, rebellion. There are people saying, no, you know, um, you're in our land. It's a very different attitude to empire, let's say, of the uh, English-speaking Canadians who define themselves as not uh, American by being British subjects, you know. Very different attitude, again, of the West Indian colonies because um, those islands have a majority black population or the descendants of slaves but they don't have an, an inherent culture in the same way that let's say the english going to uh, northern nigeria do you know they only speak one language it's yeah. english it might be a patua but it's english they only have one religion it's protestant uh christianity so there's a reason why the, the head of state of Jamaica to this day is the Queen of England, you know. So you have a very different attitude to uh, empire and then colonialism and decolonialism uh, dependent on the types of societies which are set up by mm. the British, by the English. <laughs> My parents, when my father, just to, to finish up, sorry, like my father, when he came to England in uh, in 1961, was going to the mm. mother country. Yes, because, I mean, in the West Indies, the black population aren't the colonised. I mean, they are equally uprooted as the colonisers, you know. They aren't, they aren't they're no yeah. more native to the to the islands than, than the British are. They're not hey, Arawaks. Absolutely, um, absolutely. You know. But uh, yes, but yeah, I mean, uh, uh, there's really interesting points about the economics, and and as I said, it's definitely not my my strong point. Um, but there, you know, there there is that sort of you know, for example, when the you know, the, the sort of circular trade, the, you know, the, the circular trade of slaves and and raw goods coming back uh, across the Atlantic, but also you know, going to India, for example, where you know they 
the, the, the colonies would supply the raw goods, which would they'd be they'd feed the factories of, of Britain, like the Lancashire cotton mills. Um, and then these goods could be sort of sold back to the captive markets of the colonies. And that, you know, that, that for, for me, that the, I, I would have expected that to have been a, a financially advantageous process. I, I made the point that, that what definitely does happen in, in England is that we build up a manufacturing merchant class that is enriched because of preferential tariff uh, mm. tariffs uh, to do to around empire. Full stop. Full stop. There's no question of that. And very obviously, these people are paying some level of taxes. So some of that money goes to the British state. There's there's no question of that. But as to how much it actually truly enriched the British state. There is a question on that. There is totally a question. And and you make my point, which I said before, which is somewhat inelegant, about, in effect, there's a transfer of wealth which goes from India, China, you could say Mesoamerica, etc. These are places which had some level of comparable civilization. It's a blunt term to use in this conversation compared to western europe and in a 400 year period these areas become much poorer than yeah. than europe so m- the money's going somewhere and and the, and we and we feed, and we feed them a, a great trick by taking their raw resources taking them uh to europe to england to the cotton mills and then creating goods and then selling them back to them there's and no and destroy, and destroying the. I think there is deliberately the the, the East Indic indigenous it destroyed the cotton yeah. industry, in it, which was yeah, far this... more sophisticated than the British yeah. one was. Yeah, sorry, David. No. Yeah, the so I mean that's absolutely true in terms of the, uh, Bengal, and I think it's I think it's reasonably clear that the East India Company set out to destroy. Um, you know, after a couple of hundred years or however long it was trading in Indian calicoes and bringing them back. Um, they set out to destroy yeah. that industry and replace it with their own. I mean, I think that's absolutely correct. And of course, I agree with Royfield with your point that, you know, wealth has got to be created. Individuals certainly go out and they're not doing it for the love of it. Or, you know, some some people are in different walks of life, but merchants class, they're going to make money. I think the argument, though, is much more complica- complicated than we're presenting it, which is why I don't feel very comfortable arguing it, because... At the same time, this extraordinary change is going on called the Industrial Revolution. So this is a crap advan- uh, example, but essentially, you know, when I plant my onion sets, <laughs> it takes me half a day to plant a hundred. You take an onion, a machine, a seed planter of the 19th century, and, and it can do a field in a couple of hours. The levels of productivity, the growth in consumer demand, the growth in population within England, probably part is contributed to. They think about 2% of the economy came from sugar, for example. So there's definitely an influence of um, colonization on the UK economy. But what you can't, what's very difficult to separate is what's about empire yeah. and what's about that extraordinary growth of the Industrial Revolution. And that's why it's really difficult to argue, because you can't Separate them. Yeah. untangle yeah. them yeah. very easily. But but there is, the, I, I agree what David's saying, but but there is a, a, a big example uh, 
to to use as the reason why I think it's fairly safe to say that it's not just the industrial revolution happened in in Europe and and India just couldn't catch up. We structurally as heirs yeah. of the British Empire, put in place mechanisms for industry not yeah. to flourish in those places. It's, I mean, I, I agree. I just said that at the beginning that yeah. the East India Company goes out to destroy yeah. that industry in Bengal. Yeah. Um, and indeed, it happens elsewhere. So, for example, in the 17th century, the English ban the import from Ireland into England of cattle. And that is the, one of the, the few the things that Ireland does. Mm-hmm. And industrialization doesn't hit Ireland yeah. anything like the same way as it does in England. So yeah. I'm not making some argument that empire didn't have very large, and talk about all the, the genocides and so on, doesn't have some violence within it on a, in a commercial sense. Yeah. But it's not as easy. It's not a zero-sum game. It's not yeah. that the cake was £100 large in 1700 mm. and in in 1900, it's still £100, and we've got 80 of it, and in- India has only 20 of it. That's not the way it works. Um, no, no, I, I think that is that is fair. And I think maybe at the start, I painted it to be a little bit like that. But I still fundamentally um, hold t- to my view that there's a, a, a wealth transfer w- w- which happens to, to a large degree. And we structurally, we put in place uh, tariffs, walls, laws in these places to stop lo- local industry and, and 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 the great example of us doing this is japan you know why is it that japan <laughs> could uh you know and japan had very many advantages you know it's homogeneous it's an island etc cetera, etc cetera. but japan wasn't colonized and um look what happens to japan from the meiji period um up to uh the second world war you know here here was um a nation who could actually with no natural resources from a standing start from absolutely banning all from a total standing start um a medieval in no there's no two ways about it a medieval culture in terms of technological prowess but within 50, 60 years could catch up and and be on uh, an industrial level playing field. And it's because they didn't have the institutional, cultural uh, walls put around it uh, by European colonising powers. And then they... It's again a bit more complicated than that. Because, I mean, I agree with you about, you know, what we discussed about Irish cattle and uh, the Bengal Hmm. cotton industry. Uh, But, of course, in the 19th century... Um, Britain espouses free trade very strongly indeed. Um, And actually, I think some of that dominance, so we're talking about Japan, for example, that, you know, how do you develop an industry from a standing start if if you've got this, you know, gorilla in England whose industry is so much further ahead than everybody else's coming in and selling products at a tenth of the price? So it's a bit like, Amazon today, I mean, it isn't, you know, it's not, it's not that great an analogy, maybe, but it's fair. I'm trying to not use Amazon because I think they're too big. And when one of those corporations is too big. And do you know what? It's impossible <laughs> to get away from them. Uh, uh, and I think David, that, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's what England, what Britain does in the later 19th century. It espouses free trade because it knows by opening up markets, it can they have you know, an advantage. They yeah. have a massive competitive yeah. advantage. Yeah. So it's just a very complicated story. And also going back to your point, 
right foot. I don't think it, it varies according to the situation. You know, the Bengal thing is a good example of the most negative. Mm. I think in, in Australia, New Zealand, um, and other territories possibly, it's a different story. In, in Africa, it's a very much more exploitative story, you know, that how can Africa develop an industry when it's got all this stuff being pushed into it by the Europeans? And, but, but the examples so, you give I there, David, are racially white empires. The, the places that were, were were allowed to develop and were allowed to build their own economies. Well, there's this fundamental difference that Royfield's making, I think, which I think is absolutely right, that there are different yeah. flavours of country. And actually, and that's one of the, you know, why it's so difficult to study empire is because it's so complicated. Um, and you can't just look at it as one yeah. thing with the same which operates in the same way with the same uh, crimes or, or same pluses and minuses or impacts, the better mm. phrase. But nonetheless, you know, one of the threads that goes through it, if we're going to come to uh, some of the darker sides of empire, is violence is inherent in every mm. empire, isn't it? You know, show me an empire which doesn't contain violence. And the British Empire pretended and built its own story, as I think every empire does, actually. And the story that um, Gandhi believed for a while uh, and then realised that it just wasn't true. Um, we build a story that of the good reasons we're doing it, but it, and every empire does that, but nonetheless, every empire is built on violence. Yeah. And so we talk about, you know, the genocide of, in Tasmania, the appalling impact on indigenous peoples in Australia and Canada, America, you know, and um, the slave trade in in Africa, and you know, and all that sort of stuff about imperialism, which these days we abhor. Uh, but in those days, were endemic and part of history. Had been part of world history for thousands mm. of years, all over, you know, all over the world. It's not mm. a European thing necessarily. You know, uh, when so I started. Uh, going to school in, in the 1970s and and I always rem I can always remember uh, routinely teachers and politicians of that time saying that we have the best education system in the world we have the best uh, health service still in saying the world it. Gavin now, Williamson today people, was saying we're the best of all the best well well it well, is it well <laughs> Well, he's an idiot, right? <laughs> yes, but idiot. I think routinely people stopped saying that in the early 1980s. Routinely people stopped saying that in the early 1980s. And part of this process is obviously decolonization had happened, us joining the European Union. But it's also realising the the downsides of empire and we're still living in the historical turbulence of that we so you can have an an Anne Widdicombe that feels that to criticize the British Empire is to rip something out of her her heart and what she was taught at school and what she fervently believed that there was a a civilizing good mission to to Britain and the British Empire. And I just think, I don't quite understand why somebody can't say, well, um, Winston Churchill was a great war leader, but he did also preside over a massive famine yeah. in Bengal. The two things are yeah. mutually exclusive. You can say he, he helped save, uh, you know, 
Europe, but also he did this. It doesn't mean that, you know, I, I, I don't get that. But I understand for some people it's very hard, uh, specifically, and I think you said it, Luke, that out of all of the empires of the 19th century, um, the British maybe told themselves the lie more most convincingly that they had um that they had a specific mission and it was to civilize and to bring christianity and liberal economics to the world and they were doing it because they were the heirs of um the but, romans uh, no, I mean, and I, doing I, it for I, these great i, nobles, I would say that we know, all yeah. say that to ourselves i mean the, the, the spanish are yeah. the people i know best they you know we would debate that we would probably say, well, the Spain, the Spanish were sort of pushed by gold, but they they would say that it, it's God. And and, mm. and I've had yeah. I've had I, I think I I've think had you're right. very similar conversations about the Spanish Empire, um, where you know for, for them it's civilizing. Listen, I, 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 you know now I've said it. Now I've said it. I I, I completely yeah. agree with you. I think the one the one nation which is more honest about its imperial legacy than any other is the Belgians. And even then they say, but it yeah. was the king doing it, not the Belgian yeah. state. Even they put some yeah. distance, don't they? But, yeah, you know? but... And and the French still think that they have a great mission in, in West Africa and are yeah. still there geopolitically and militarily, you know. So yeah. you are right. You I mean, right. I spent a long, long time in Belgium as well. And they, they you know, well, in the 70s and 80s, they hadn't really come to terms with it then it wasn't part of the sort of curriculum they didn't really know about what went on in the congo should we move on to fluffier things Mm. cultural yes please (laughs) um so yeah i think we can be a bit meta and uh here and we can just refer back to our own old episodes of the things that made england make the case for uh empire being a thing that made england culturally because we've done quite a few relevant episodes um for music we could see the scar episode um, for food, you could see the curry or a nice cup of tea episodes. Uh, for sport, we've got the cricket episode. And I think all of these episodes were about how the interaction between England and the empire was key to the development of these things. You know, I mean, all of these things were are, are the sort of brilliant because of the mixture of, of England and, and empire. And obviously, we could go further on all of the above. This is the time of year that we make chutney. Um, and chutney is a condiment that comes from empire. It's Indian by origin and contains all of those spices that adventurous empire builders traveled far and wide to secure. But we make it with the apples off my dad's apple trees. And it is the key condiment of that most English of meals, the plowman's lunch. I love a plowman's lunch. Some really nice cheddar with ham and a hunk of bread and a p- pickled onion. And of course, some chutney, uh, preferably my wife's chutney. She makes very good chutney. Um, rugby, you know, similarly is another very empire-based sport uh, that is mostly played by the ex-colonies, white colonies mostly, it has to be said, or in, even the informal colonies. And, and Argentina. Argentina, as I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. And the French, yeah. weirdly. I don't know why the French got involved. <laughs> um, you know, the, 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 there's the a Georg- really... the Georgians, yes, I know. Yeah. Yes. True, yeah. yeah. There, there is a... Really interesting point just to uh, to note there with specifically with sport, though we could even we did an episode on the suit as well, um, that the way that politicians and businessmen the world over dress, with the exception of the Arabic world, 
is this pastiche of a pre-Victorian way of dressing, which becomes codified in the in the Victorian age in England. That's it. That's and that is economic and cultural dominance of the globe. You know, in the Victorian age by the English, by the British, um, and so and and that is the first. It's not really the first moment of globalization in the world, because arguably, uh, when when Columbus goes to the Americas and you've got uh, the English and the French and the Portuguese in India, etc., there's a level of uh, mercantilian globalization that goes on there. But so powerful is the legacy of the Victorian age that our sport is played globally. And just to reinforce that, I'm sat here in California and we think as American culture has been incredibly dominant in the last 50, 60 years of, uh, of, of world history because of Hollywood, but American sport is only played by Americans. You know, baseball has got a very small footprint outside of the United States, they play it a little bit in Japan and also in Cuba. American football is only played in America. And it's just organised you know, rugby. Basketball's got a... With, ar- with armour on. Uh, what, 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 <laughs> but, but, it, but it shows you how pervasive and how strong um, empire was in the 19th century that the whole world plays yeah. football, yeah. full stop. You know, the that's, whole that's world not... dresses... That's largely because of Derby, Derby County, isn't it? Though? I mean, <laughs> massive influence. <laughs> massive. Well, they, massive. they might do because there are some weird things. You know, it's like Athletic Bilbao uh, wear the Sunderland strip because they were they were Sunderland miners. Is yeah, that right. Yeah. AC Milan are called AC Milan, not AC Milan. And the C is the C Mil- is AC Athletic and Cricket Club. Milan. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. Newell. Newell's old boys, Newell's old boys in Argentina, Corinthians in Brazil, all these examples. And they're they're all set up by English, British people going, uh, you know, throughout the world in the early 19th, early 20th century and setting up football teams and cricket teams. Cricket teams, yeah. Yeah. Um, Empires heavily influenced English literature. and English literature isn't, of course, just literature from England, but literature written in English. Um, there is a massive canon of empire literature from the likes of Rudyard Kipling or Ryder Haggard, G.A. Henty, you know, who wrote all those books with, like, with Roberts in Kandahar or with Gordon Khartoum, with Wolfe in Quebec. I think I've actually got one somewhere here. Um, John, John, John Buchan, Buchan with his, yeah. um, you know. Great stuff. And... But for me, the greatest of this genre um, is The Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, um, who's a Pole. Um, um, and this is a, an, an exploration of how imperialism corrupts and ruins the imperialists. The Heart of Darkness have a massive influence on the canon of literature that explored empire from the angle of the colonized. Um, and this literature in English from the colonies has given us some of the great authors of the 20th century. Jean Rhys or V.S. Naipaul, Sam Selvon, Salman Rushdie, Arundhati Roy, Chinua Achebe, Vikram Seth, or Zadie Smith. You know, they all wrote about the experience of empire from various points of view in English. 
And the thing, you know, empire was also central to English authors. You know, for example, like Bertha in, in Jane Eyre is a Creole from the West Indies who was brought to England and went mad. And her story is picked up by Jean Rees in the Wide Side Gas OC. England is a bit, 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 When we just come to London town, we used to work on the underground. But working on the underground, you don't get to know your way around. England is a bit. There's no escaping it. England is a bit. So, yeah, on, on the ethnic front, I mean, so you've already brought it up as we were going along. Um, but, you know, it, I think, obviously, you know, the, one of the massive um, impacts of, of, of empire is that we are a multi-ethnic country. Um, and, you know, I, I think something very symbolic there is is the Windrush, um, and which was a ship uh, which actually called the Empire Windrush, wasn't it? Um that brought the first large groups of West Indian immigrants to the United Kingdom. Um, and that that uh, generation has been known as the Windrush generation. You, know, you mentioned your dad, Royfield. I mean, does he consider himself the Windrush generation? Yes, though, actually, until this the generation was termed as such, I actually right. wouldn't have. To me, because he came in the early 1960s, he's the second wave. But people see it as the Empire Windrush came in, what, 1948? The 1948 to the end of the 60s is basically that whole yeah. Windrush generation. Yeah. But, like, when my father came, there were people who had already been here for 10-plus yeah. years. So he, to him, he feels like he's kind of like the second wave, but just know. integrating that after whatever those fifty years. Yeah, but yes, and 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 you know, I think some really interesting things like you know, like the corner shop, which is traditionally run by South Asian families, mean that you know these communities are embedded in and interact with the wider British society. And I think you know what you were saying about the the, the English society, Luke. Remember all, all all the non non white. Yes, I know, but that's what I was going to sort of ch- slightly challenge there. But where, um, you know, I live in a very rural setting. You know, one of the, your points was that it's very urban. Um, but you know, yeah, we've got a, mm-hmm. a, a village shop that's run run by an Asian family, and you know, that's and they're part of the village. That's it. And indeed, I live in a very rural area where they haven't. You know, uh, I suppose in Nettlebed. Uh, there's a little bit of cultural diversity, but um, but I work in London, as so many people do. And although this community, so where I live, is quite wide, you know, I've worked in a completely multicultural environment for well at least yeah. twenty years in London. Though. In London, yeah. yeah. Dare I say the, the, this uh, this podcast is a multicultural <laughs> <Exactly>. environment? <laughs> it is. I mean, it's. Because after all, it's got a Scot in it. Yeah, I know. Somebody whose great grandmother three times reviews might once have seen a Scottish person in a in a chip shot having a cuddy. But you know, <laughs> sorry, I mean very rude, Luke. It turns out that Royfield's Scottish, probably Scottish with me. Um, That's yeah. probably true. And our beloved NH- NHS is, I think, also um, sort of you know. The, 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 Huge percentage of, of, of employees come come from the empire in one way or another, and are still coming. Um, you know, they're, they're still um, 
doctors, and I, which I think is is slightly problematic. Um, you know, uh, where we are taking very well trained doctors away from countries where they are probably needed more than they are here. Um, so how do you how do you stop that then? Oh, you sink the economy through Brexit. They don't want to come. <laughs> I mean, I think one of the one of the things about this is, uh, I mean, it's certainly going to be work, going to be working. But, um, that is one of the things that it's important to split apart. You know, what is the biggest thing maybe that uh, the British Empire supercharged didn't create is globalization, yeah. isn't it? You know, for good or ill. Um, Certainly didn't invent it, you know. I agree that was, you know, starting a small way before, as somebody said, maybe Roy Field, but it supercharged it and it made it irreversible and, mm. you know, fundamental to the way the world is and the world will be. Empire is responsible for some of the great mass migrations in history, whether it is white settlers to the settler colonies, some are 160,000 convicts were sent to Australia or the 30,000 Africans sent across the Atlantic every year for 100 years, or indentured labor or a Chinese, of Chinese or Indians sent around the world, meaning there was a significant Indian population in Uganda. Um, and, of course, the post-war immigration to England itself, as we mentioned, the, the, the Windrush generation, um, the British Empire is responsible for huge dislocations of people for both good and ill. Yes, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. I wouldn't argue at all. It's quite interesting that when you look at the key stage four curricula and syllabuses, um, they very much put empire in that context of global movements of people because global movements of people, again, is a fact of world mm. history. I mean, again, mm. I think the empire and European empires generally maybe, you know, supercharge it. But it's, uh, it's very much a part a, um, a part of world history. Yeah. Mm. But actually, I had Pretty Patel here. Um, yeah. What? She's in your house. <laughs> <laughs> but somebody, somebody proposed, and, proposed and, that she, she, if she ever writes her autobiography, she has to call it the female Enoch. I thought that was very funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's got... She's, just to be contentious, she's got the wrong kind of view for an ethnic views for an ethnic minority as far as Guardian readers are concerned, doesn't she? She's got the wrong kind of views. Just, Full just stop. I mean, I wanted to raise two questions. Am I is it now my time for just a couple of minutes? Because we have well, been because you haven't said anything. Your moment has come. <laughs> hey, can I have my bit now? Come on. <laughs> I've been sitting here as good as gold. <laughs> oh, David, you're still here. I'm, I'm yeah, noted. Okay, fair cop. Fair cop. Fair cop. <laughs> yes. Oh, you're very funny, the fair of you. Ha ha. <laughs> Please, David. I'm not saying another yeah, word. No, fire away, fire away. For a good fire two away. minutes. Well, just one, I mean, one is, one of the issues we face now is how we think about empire. You know, what's our attitude to it? How do we feel about it? Um, it's It's quite easy to look at individual events in the empire, like the Tasmanian genocide is one you mentioned, and say, well, that's a horrible thing. That's a terrible thing. Um, how do we feel generally about empire? Uh, how do you think we ought to teach our young people about empire? Um, you know, should we feel ashamed of it? Should we feel that it's a process which is part of history? Uh, but, um, uh, you know, is there a separate discussion about 
historical interpretation, which is about impact, you know, what happens, what is what what is the legacy, and then a moral thing, which is not history, but it is, you know, you don't have to be, uh, you know, you'd have to be some kind of idiot not to think that wiping an entire people out is not morally reprehensible. So I don't know. It's a very open yeah. question. That how, is kind of what I was that's going That's what the generation like me are coming to terms with that Paul Royfield yeah. said. So. No, that's kind of what I was going to wrap up with. I think we're, we're sort of pretty much there. Um, but, you know, that sort of good or bad argument, um, which... If we, if we, you know, if you force me to give an opinion in the culture war, I have an opinion. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's it's fairly pointless argument trying to sort of have a balance sheet um, on the empire, saying it was a good thing or a bad thing. I think education can yeah. only ever be the right thing to do. You, we we should know about these things, and 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 you know, I, there, I think it is slightly lacking. In our school education, um, the, the the you know the study of empire is is not very really done very much. So I think some of those broader sweep things, like you're saying about the sort of migration, I think is very interesting. My my son did a a, a project; he's only fourteen, but you know he did he did a project on genocide, and I think that was quite an interesting way of looking at it. We don't, I think previously we might have said you know the sort of the Nazi genocide was a sort of kind of German thing. Um, but I think to actually study genocides, um, including Tasmania, but uh, you know, um, the Tutsis and the Hutus, and you know, studying it at a, at a global level, you get a far better understanding of things. Um, and and you know, and the empire is a great global thing. Mm. Yes, because I mean, and there's so much polarization on this, um, and you know, you've got historians uh you know you, you if you want to find polarization you just go online and uh you, you fill your boots sort of thing um you know i think you've got people like niall ferguson if you really want to read about how how wonderful the, the british empire was um or you know you could read the book called inglorious empire what the british did to india by sashi Theroux, which uh, is apparently very good and well recommended well, I've read it. I mean, it's a piece of polemic by a, um, a nationalist journalist, but it's yeah. got some really good points in it because it's come from the other angle. And actually, the most important thing about that book is the quote that um, uh, the cricket um, is an Indian game accidentally invented by <laughs> the English. <laughs> so he gave, he gives us credit for two things, does um, uh, Shashi, which is um, one is tea time and the other is cricket. <laughs> The rest sucked. <laughs> Boyfield, you know. Uh, no, no, no. Um, I'm just, just going to re re just repeat what I said before and feel free to cut this out if you want because I don't feel I'm, I'm adding anything to this other than to say that um, none of us who are, on, who are on the earth today are responsible for the British Empire. Um, however, uh, I... So none of us need to feel that somebody attacking uh, something which happened um, is somebody physically or emotional or intellectually attacking us. Uh, but I think with the with the benefit of of time, we can clearly see that the empire was responsible for a lot of bad things, shall we say, and that doesn't take away somebody's right to call themselves a proud Englishman. 
uh, somebody who's proud uh, of Britain. And as I use Winston Churchill as, as the example, yeah. Churchill was a wonderful orator, a great writer, somebody who, in terms of in terms of one individual, the one individual of which. Um, the rest of the world can look at and say that intellectually, physically, morally, he helped defeat the Nazi hordes, which I think we can all say we're, we're, we're on the right side of history saying that. However, you know, as a, a military um, strategist, incredibly flawed, Gallipoli, as somebody who presided over uh, at the, one of the high points of empire, uh, a million subjects of the empire starving to death you know he's he's responsible for that it doesn't detract away from the other things that he did yeah. you know and and for me that embodies talking about about empire you know as i as i said very at the start at the start of this we're all children of empire we're not responsible for it but i feel in this conversation much more of a symbolic weight because i am visibly um somebody who is from a colonial past and who is the child of empire and i don't see it as all negative i actually absolutely don't yeah you know and my parents and grandparents um and David used the expression talking about uh, Priti Patel not having the, the correct attitudes for an ethnic, if from a Guardian perspective. I kind of don't completely either. I do in whole part, but I don't completely. And And we should be able to look at the empire thus, I would say. You know, it happened... We can learn from it. We're all children of it. We're all students of it. We can take the lot of terrible things it did but, and then also see how, what it's bequeathed the world as well. Hmm. Yes, and, 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 and as slightly <laughs> argumentative types, I, I think that we, you know, probably you in a way react against what you're supposed to think, Royfield, and I probably in a way react against the way I'm supposed to think. Um, you know, I, I, I instinctively you know, bristle when people sort of get tub thumping about the empire. Just I find it very difficult to deal with. Uh, but that might be uh, my problem rather than saying anything about the empire itself. So, do you get um, uh, upset when people start tub thumping about the empire, about guilt and shame, and how disgusting it was? Um... No, I, I, I'm, I'm more sympathetic to that side of thing. I mean, I don't, I don't think guilt and yes, shame indeed. are particularly helpful. I, and I've, actually, I was just listening to the Moral Maze of the, uh, doing an Empire episode. Oh yeah. Um, and I think that was one of the best points was to try and remove the emotion from it. You know, it's you know whether excessive pride exactly... or guilt are not actually particularly do, yeah. do helping anything really. Um, as Dr. Royfield says, it wasn't. Exactly. That. I think it's exactly right. And... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just agreeing with what Royfield says. The key thing is that one of the reasons why the people get so uptight, I think, is that there is a very strong feeling that this is about an accusation of guilt and shame to today's generation. It's also about, you know, how we remember our past and what is it that makes us us. But that's more complicated. But I think making this point constantly, this is not about guilt or shame. 
this is about recognizing that some of the things that the empire did you would absolutely never want to do again and must not mm. allow to happen again and you know the empire is not a, a great thing we wouldn't want it now wouldn't choose it now but it happened at a time when empire was natural so i'm blathering on Broyfus point is absolutely right it's i think it's really important that we stop get people talking about it take the guilt and shame out of it and the whole conversation gets better and the excessive pride. Shall we Shall we wrap up there and, and listen to our Facebook roundup? Fiona Powell here with the Social Media Roundup. And first of all, before I begin, I must apologise for my voice. I'm afraid I came down with the Father, Son and Holy Ghost of sinus infections recently and actually lost my voice for two whole weeks. So if you've never heard me before, I usually sound better than this. And if you've heard me before, you know, I usually sound better than this. Well, it was something, wasn't it? Fish and chips. Could you get more English than that? Well, apparently, yes. The recent TTME discussion chaired by the three blokes, him from Loughborough, our proud brummy mate and our most charming of posh boys, was quite the eye-opener, wasn't it? You mean that fish and chips... That most English of dishes, which most of us assumed was carried over in the backpack of William the Bastarding Conqueror, wasn't English? Yeah, I know potatoes weren't in England in 1066, but knowing my Saxon brothers and sisters, I know without doubt that they found something to slice into tiny bits and fry in lard. Turnips, perhaps? But no. Fish and chips were not first fried on the White Cliffs of Dover. And Royfield did a most incredible expose of the origins of fish and chips, a dish that was introduced by the Jewish diaspora, and the other two piled in with what was hands down one of my favourite episodes ever. And then we came to the vote. 96 were yay for the cabinet. Sixteen others had a variety of not-quite votes, including the most amusing, merely a malt vinegar delivery service offered by Jennifer Prather. So, into the cabinet go the fish and chips, wrapped, I hope, in yesterday's newspaper. When last I checked, which was admittedly a little bit ago, there were 30-plus comments on fish and chips and... And where is there a Nando's and where can you buy Nando's and Long John Silver's and all sorts of free advertising for various restaurants. And now there are loads of fish and chips pictures on the page just to make you hungry. From those wrapped up in paper to the ridiculously, <laughs> ridiculously posh looking one at the Norwood Club posted by Lonnie. Wedge of lemon and tartar sauce on an actual plate? Mary Baxter's picture of fish and chips on her table were the most appealing to me. Yes, they were on plates, but they did look fresh from the chippies and very yummy with mushy peas and proper vinegar. And what Mary said was called a chip cob in Nottingham, and it looked like a chip butty to me. I was so tempted to get over to her place uninvited at once, except you know, eight-hour plane ride and coronavirus and distancing, etc. Maybe next year, eh, Mary? Stephanie Lindamore posted a picture of fish and chips and then exclaimed, 
So they were mushy peas. <laughs> and I believe that it was this thread that led to the discussion that made me laugh about whether the picture showed mushy peas or guacamole. Guacamole. Really. There is a flood of excellent banter on the site at the moment. I must say you're all doing a fantastic job of keeping us entertained. You're posting pictures of dippy eggs and lambs in nappies, and that is not a dinner menu item, by the way, and cricket and that most ancient of chestnuts, which comes first on a scone, the cream or the jam, and the second most English of chestnuts, is it a scone or a scone? It's a scone, and I like it the Cornish way. Thank you. And I must mention the Victoria sponge picture and interesting commentary. Robert Cochlan, and I do hope I pronounced your name correctly, Robert, says that his great-grandmother was able to bake a Victoria sponge on a wood-fueled stove, which is an impressive skill. Our little group is growing, 643 of you, and we do love to hear from all of you. And honestly, without you and your banter, it would be just the three blokes going on endlessly with me jumping in like some older sister every five minutes. So please keep looking, keep commenting. A very special thank you to our executive producers, Michelle Gersish, Marilyn Little and Eric Trometer. And our latest Patreon supporter, Joseph Smits. Thank you to all of you. Keep bantering, keep commenting and tune in next time, which will be soon, I hope. And I believe we're going to be beginning to talk about buns. Lovely, yummy, yeasty buns. Less of that from the cheap seats, please. Now, I don't know about you, but I could use a cup of tea. And where around here can I get a plate of fish with perhaps fried turnips and guacamole <laughs> and vinegar? <laughs> Until next time, cheery bye. So is, it, is it going in the cabinet then? Yeah. Oh, of course it is. Yeah. Yes. Good one. Anyone going to ask? Oh, come British Empire is going in the cabinet of things that made England. Well, we're going to put it to the oh, vote yes. now. We're a liberal mm. democracy. Yeah, like the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> Who's certifying yeah. these results? That's yes. what I want to know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we need some field officer somewhere. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.